up to John 14. You notice I brought my water bottle up this time. I had so many people last week just tell me, I wanted to bring you a cup of water uh, when I was, uh, had that frog in my throat uh, last week. But uh, I'm prepared this week, uh, at least for that uh, issue. But uh, we'll see what else comes up. Uh, but uh, back when I was uh, the children's pastor uh, at our ascending church, the, the Bridge Bible Fellowship uh, in Reseda, California, uh, our church uh, sponsored several uh, Bible clubs uh, in the, the public uh, elementary schools uh, throughout the San Fernando Valley there. We worked kind of in partnership uh, with uh, CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, uh, and we had uh, many of our youth students uh, and others who would go and, and teach uh, one day a week in after-school uh, Bible club in the, in the public schools. Uh, and it was an amazing uh, outreach uh, opportunity. Uh, and uh, on, on one of those occasions, one of the, the Bible club kids uh, came and uh, visited our church on a Sunday morning. Uh, and uh, his dad came uh, with him. Uh, he, he wanted to know what was going to be taught to his son. Uh, and uh, I, I commended him uh, for that and, and told him that he was welcome uh, to sit in uh, in the children's ministry classroom uh, with his son and to find out all that was going to be uh, said. And so I, I went in with them and, and sat down uh, as well. And, uh, and the Sunday school lesson for that day was from the book of Joshua, uh, the conquest of Jericho and the destruction of the people in that city. And uh, I wasn't uh, embarrassed uh, by what the, the dad and his son were, were going to, uh, to hear. Uh, we should never be uh, embarrassed uh, or ashamed of what uh, God has put in uh, his scriptures. But I did uh, think this is going to be an interesting conversation uh, after, uh, after the service. Um, uh, and uh, the dad and I sat in the, in the class uh, during the, the lesson portion and then... Uh, we stepped out kind of during the, the craft and the review game time. And uh, he, as I was talking with the dad in the hallway, I, I learned that his, his wife was a Christian uh, and that she was uh, uh, attending uh, church elsewhere. And uh, he was uh, just struggling with, with her faith, struggling with Christianity. And uh, I, I steered the, the conversation uh, to, to the gospel, and I got to, to proclaim the gospel to him. And I uh, and challenged him uh, to, to respond to the truth of the gospel. And uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting because he, I, I, I laid it all out there and, and asked what he thought of that and, and encouraged him to, to look to Christ in faith. He says, I've, I've heard all of that before. Uh, and uh, his, uh, his point of hesitation uh, was on the exclusivity of Christ. How can, how can he say that, that Jesus is the only way to God? Uh, and uh, I... I responded by pointing to uh, the verse that we're going to study this morning. John 14, 6. Uh, Jesus says that, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. And it was interesting because I, I brought that up. And he had an immediate response. He said, well, there are many different ways of interpreting that verse. I said, Really? Like, I, I think Jesus is being very clear there uh, that, that he is the only way uh, to get to God the Father. Uh, and he, he kind of dismissed that and kind of put it into the realm of the unknowable. Uh, and, and some of you might have had experiences similar to that. Right? If you have had gospel conversations with uh, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, uh, if you have... Uh, proclaim the gospel, uh, you have probably encountered that at some point or another. 
kind of that uh, uh, dismissal of the truth uh, as being merely uh, personal opinion uh, or the dismissal of the truth merely as being one view among many. Uh, And what's very intriguing is that if you look at the the world around us, uh, the world around us proclaims absolute certainty about some things, right? Uh, And absolute uncertainty about other things. Uh, the world is, is absolutely certain uh, that racism is everywhere, that drag queens need story hours, uh, that men should be able to compete in women's sports. They, they, are, they are absolutely certain about those things. But at the same time, they pretend uh, that, with, that there can be no certainty or there must be absolute uncertainty about all religious claims. It's often the claim made that, that all, all religions or all roads lead to God. All, all lead to heaven. Uh, and the idea behind that is that we cannot elevate one faith above uh, any other faith. Uh, and again, because of that absolute uncertainty on religious truth. And there's absolute uncertainty because they say that all truth is, is personal. Right? Uh, and that every person can have their own truth, and all of us can be right, even if uh, our views uh, contradict one another. Th- this idea that all religions are equal uh, is known as uh, religious pluralism. And it comes out of uh, postmodernism, the idea that, that all truth is subjective, uh, personal rather than objective, uh, and uh, consistent uh, at all times and in all places. Uh, and... Again, this is, this is the water that we are swimming in. Uh, this is the, the air around us that we are breathing. If we're going to be serious about engaging others with the gospel, we're going to, to encounter uh, these types of uh, scoffs when, when we proclaim Christ. Uh, and uh, really what, what we're entering into is a time where, where the world is beginning to, to vilify anybody who would uh, deny uh, religious pluralism. Uh, and elevate uh, Christianity as the one true faith. Uh, it, we're entering into a time where if we're going to say that Christ is the exclusive way, the only way to God, uh, that, that is going to, to take an act of moral courage to stand upon that. Uh, because the world is uh, now saying, if you're, gonna, if you're going to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ, that you are being harmful to others. Because you're saying that they're not right, and that you are. This is, this is the world that we are now living in, and we have to figure out what, what are we to do? What do we do when the world says that we are attacking them? Uh, what do we do when, when the world begins to attack us for saying that Jesus is the only way to God? Well, I, I think what we are studying through right now uh, in John's Gospel, uh, John uh, 13 through 16, which is known as the Farewell Discourse, uh, as Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for his departure, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to leave you, and this is what you're going to, to do. Uh, he's gonna, Jesus is going to, to send the Spirit to lead them, to guide them. He's going to tell them uh, that they are to, to go forth. Uh, even as he has been sent, he's going to send them. But he's also going to, to warn them and to prepare them. If you, if you turn the page a little bit over to, to John 15, as we... As we 
work through uh, this uh, discourse, Jesus' final words to his disciples, if you look in verse 18, Jesus is not going to be murky about uh, how the world is going to relate to uh, the disciples once he is gone. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He is, uh, he is preparing his disciples. And then, uh, b- but take heart. Look at how Jesus ends this discourse. If you look at the last verse, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So that's where, where this discourse is, is going, but we're still kind of at the, at the beginning stages of it. And it began in uh, verse 31 of chapter 13, uh, and uh, from, from that first verse kind of to chapter 14, verse 14, uh, you have this focus mainly upon the departure of Christ. He's saying he's going to depart, uh, and the the response of the disciples is despair. Uh, They're going to be immediately asking questions, right? Jesus says he's going to go, and the first question uh, that that is raised by the disciples, uh, and you can guess who asks it, uh, Peter, right? He says, uh, where are you going? Why why can't we come with you? Or actually, he doesn't say, why can't we come? Why why can't I go? (laughs) Uh, And... Uh, P- Peter asked that question, and then Jesus is going to, to slowly be responding uh, to those dis- questions. And uh, there's going to be a lot of back and forth uh, here in the beginning of chapter 14. Now, as we've seen in previous weeks, uh, 14.1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he's seeking to instill courage in his disciples and to, and to comfort them and to reorient their heart, their mind, their affections uh, away from the things of this earth earth and toward God. And as we studied last week, he begins to tell them about heaven in verses two and three. He says, in my father's house are many dwellings. And if it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So he gives them those assurances of eternity in heaven where he is preparing a place for them and that he is going to one day he's going uh, away from them but one day he will return and he will receive them to himself he will receive us to himself then in verse four what we're going to begin to study this morning jesus tells the disciples and you know the way where i am going so jesus tells them that and then uh Thomas clears his throat and says, uh, we don't exactly understand. Uh, can, can you give us a little bit more information? And, and Thomas says, uh, we don't know where you're going. Verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas is saying, we don't know the destination. Where are you going? Which is it's like Jesus just talked about heaven, said where he's going, what he's going to do. And then Thomas is like, wait, can you, can you explain this more? They're uncertain about the destination. So if you're uncertain about the destination, how do you know the path to that destination? And then Jesus answers in verse 6. 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus makes this clear and powerful statement. A claim of exclusivity. And within this are are bound up exclusive claims about himself, about God, about humanity, about heaven, about eternal life. These, These are tremendous claims. Tremendous truths. And truths that are uh, offensive in the first century. It's offensive to say that no one gets to God except through Christ. That was offensive then, it's still offensive now. But it was true then, and it's still true now. And these are truths that we must come to, to know and to believe in the quietness of our hearts. Right, it's easy to, to affirm these truths when we are sitting together uh, in church service. It's more difficult to affirm these truths when you're having lunch with a coworker, right? Uh, when there's no other Christians around uh, to, to affirm you in what you are saying. But when you have to go out on that limb, uncertain about how somebody's going to respond to what you're going to say. As you proclaim the truth of this verse uh, the truth about Christ. How's the world going to respond? And that's where, in that moment, that's when what you really believe is going to be on display. That's why we need to, to know this and we need to be convinced of it. So that in those moments we don't shrink back, as Peter is going to do a little bit later this night. Remember, Jesus told Peter, even after Peter said, oh, I'm willing to die for you. Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times before sunrise. Peter had to wrestle, and we have to wrestle with these truths. How are we to respond to the religious pluralism and inclusivity of the world around us? What exactly are we to know and believe about Jesus? And what is it we need to, to wrestle with in the quietness of our own hearts uh, as we prepare as we prepare? to have conversations with others about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So I want to focus in on verse 6 this morning, and we're going to look at these four assertions that Jesus makes about himself. I want to pray before we dive into that verse. Father, we, we come to you. You know our hearts far better than we do. Father, you know all of the occasions where we have shrunk back. Where we have not acted with courage, but with cowardice. Where we have not faithfully proclaimed what Jesus teaches here. But I pray that you would use this time to help us to grasp the truth of your word. That the truth of your word would cement deep into our hearts. That it would grow into conviction. Then we would live out those convictions. Whether we are on our own, whether we are among those who do not know you, or we are among those who know you and worship you. 
Lord, use this time to encourage, to embolden, to strengthen our minds and our hearts to your glory, honor, and praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to see these four assertions that, that Jesus makes in this verse. Now, and, and the first assertion is that Jesus says that he is the path to God. He is the way to God. And, and, and the word here is the idea of a, a course. Uh, elsewhere, it's translated as a, a road. Uh, it involves uh, travel uh, from uh, or movement from one location uh, to uh, another. Uh, and, and notice that when, when Thomas asks the question, uh, in, in essence saying, how do we know the way? Uh, Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, Thomas, I will show you the way. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, Thomas, I am the way. Uh, And this is uh, the sixth uh, I am statement by Jesus in John's gospel, uh, depending on how you count. Uh, But I'll I'll, I'll say it's the the sixth I am statement. uh, And uh, we've studied uh, most of these in the past. The first one was in John 6, 35, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 12, uh, we see uh, Jesus uh, say that, uh, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Uh, In chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 7 through 9, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, come, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Uh, then in uh, verse 11 of that same chapter, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Return to 11.25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. And he challenged Martha, do you believe this? And here in John 14, 6, as we're studying, and then uh, there's going to be another one in John 15, uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, that Jesus is the true vine. Now each of these statements is a is a statement of self-disclosure. It's a proclamation of who Jesus is and what he came uh, to do. And what will happen uh, to those who trust him. Uh, it's, Jesus will, will make that statement, uh, and then it's usually followed by, and whoever believes, whoever follows, whoever enters through the door. Uh, there, there's uh, implications for uh, responding to the truth about who Jesus is. And here Jesus is emphasizing Uh, That he is the way, the path, the road. Uh, And if you think about it, what is implied there, if there there is a way and a path, uh, there is an assumption of two points, right? Uh, A path goes from one location to another location. Uh, And so if Jesus is saying that he is the way, what two points are being assumed? He is the connection between two locations. Uh, And those locations are, in essence, sinful man and a holy God. Jesus is that connection, that way, that path between uh, sinful human beings uh, and the God who's given us everything, life and breath and everything else. 
But we have rebelled against Him. He is the only way to peace and reconciliation and relationship with the Creator. He is the ladder extending between heaven and earth that, was, uh, that Jacob saw in Genesis 28. Jesus is uh, the door that we enter through to get to God. That was the whole point of John chapter 10, right? He is the door of the sheep. Uh, and if anyone enters through, he will live. He's the, the narrow gate and the narrow path of Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What's amazing is how the world strives uh, to teach and proclaim the exact opposite of that. The world proclaims that the broad way goes to heaven. And indeed, uh, that it proclaims that all religions go to God. Right? And just think about that in terms of street names. Right? There are many broad ways. When was the last time you saw a street called the narrow way? Right? Anyone, anyone see that? If you, if you catch that sign, send a picture of it to me. Uh, but there are, there are many broad ways that, that the world uh, exalts and, and elevates. Uh, but they don't speak about and emphasize the narrow way. And this idea that all religions lead to God, it is, it is taught regularly. Uh, and uh, especially in, uh, in the academia. Many university uh, philosophy professors will, will, will teach their classes using this illustration. Uh, the, the, I, they'll say that all human religions uh, are like uh, blind men touching an elephant. Uh, and, and each of these religions, each of these blind men is touching uh, a different portion of the elephant. One, one human religion touches the, the trunk of the elephant and they come to one conclusion about who God is. Then another human religion, another blind man is touching the tail of the elephant and says, this is what God is like. And another religion touches the side of the elephant uh, and the leg of the elephant or the tusk of the elephant or the ear of the elephant, whatever it may be. Uh, and they say all, all of these human religions uh, are proclaiming what they know, uh, but they're only uh, a small portion of the truth, right? Uh, and uh, that illustration uh, has been used numerous times, and it's swept many, many hearts away and into religious pluralism. Uh, and, and that illustration sounds, sounds humble, and it sounds wise and profound, but several issues with that. Number one, the professor, the narrator of that illustration, he is not speaking as a blind man. Right? How is he speaking? He is speaking as one who has full and complete sight. He is there. He's not blind. He's the one who is seeing. And he knows everybody else is blind. He knows the, the true shape, the full uh, shape of the elephant. But see, the, the narrator of that story who's adopted this view of religious pluralism, who's adopted, adopted this view of uh, postmodern truth, uh, where the everything, everybody else uh, has to speak with uncertainty, but they get to speak with certainty. And in essence, if you really think about it, that narrator has elevated himself to actually be God in that illustration. They're the only one with full and complete knowledge about what the elephant is like and what all of the people are like. So there's a, there's a, a big issue there. If it's really going to be consistent, that narrator needs to say, I'm also blind and I don't know. They're really going to be consistent, but they don't speak that way. 
There's also another issue with that illustration. It assumes that the elephant cannot speak. It assumes that God cannot communicate with humanity. Right? Because what if uh, everybody was blind, but the elephant could speak? And the blind men say, oh, God is like this. And then the elephant just says, actually, no, that's just my trunk. That's not my entire being. That's just my ear. That's just my side. See, if the elephant is able to speak, uh, then the blindness of the men doesn't matter. That illustration assumes that, that God cannot or has not communicated with humanity and revealed himself. Now, there is something true in that illustration. That humanity is indeed spiritually blind. But, but God has not abandoned us to our spiritual blindness. He has revealed himself in creation. Uh, we saw that earlier this summer when we studied Psalm 19. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth uh, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. God has revealed himself in creation. God has also revealed himself in his word. Listen to 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. Peter says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So what we have in our hands is communication from God. What we have is that elephant uh, talking to us, telling us all about himself. He has revealed himself. In his creation, in his word, and also in his son. And that's the whole point of John's gospel. John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. The whole point of John's gospel uh, is that uh, Jesus is presenting and explaining God to us. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Look to the Word. And Jesus is more than just a wise teacher who is able to point us to God. He himself is the way to God. God has revealed himself in his Son, and Jesus now proclaims to us, indeed to all people everywhere, that he is the way. God. And again, this is, this is what we must know, believe, and embrace as Christians. Now, this truth is so integral to our faith that Jesus is the way. Now, there are numerous occasions in the book of Acts uh, where the early Christians were identified as followers of the way. Acts 9, verse 2, 19, 9, and 23, 22, 4, 24, 14, and 22. That they are followers of the way. Jesus alone is the way to God. This is the, the first assertion that he makes. And then there's a, a second assertion. Jesus asserts that he is the standard of the truth. And here in 14.6, Jesus is, is saying that he is these three things. And he emphasizes each of them by, by placing the, the definitive article before uh, each uh, term. Okay, and so the, uh, get into grammar. Uh, who, who has their grammar police identification uh, w- with us this morning? For everybody else, 
Grammar, grammar matters, okay? Uh, there is a, uh, the definite article uh, is to say something specific. So if I were to say, give me uh, the chair, and I, and I point to I'm speaking about a specific chair. If I say, just give me a chair, I'm being unspecific. Give me uh, any chair will do. So just give me a chair. But then there's also a, a use of uh, the definitive article, the, that, that speaks of a, a chief uh, object in its class. Uh, when I speak of uh, the Bruce Groves, I'm speaking about the best Bruce Groves of all the Bruce Groves in all the world, in all humanity, right? Uh, and that's oftentimes in, it comes across in, uh, in, in the Greek, the English translations don't use it this way, uh, but oftentimes in the Greek it will say the Jesus when it doesn't need to. Uh, there, there is an emphasis there on being first in class. And that is what Jesus is communicating here when he asserts that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the first in class of each of those things, the only one of each of those things. The best, the greatest, par excellence. And based upon uh, the context of Thomas's question, because again, Thomas, Thomas is saying, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus' response is directing to how, how will they know the way? And he identifies himself as the way. And then he uh, attaches the truth and the life with that. So we, as, we, as we look at this, the main emphasis is that Jesus is the way. Uh, and supporting that is the fact that he is the truth and the life. Uh, and all three of these are, are inseparable. Uh, Jesus is the way to God because he is the standard of truth and because he is the source of life. Uh, if Jesus uh, did not possess the truth or proclaim the truth, then he could not be the way to God. Uh, he has to be truth itself. Uh, and again, truth is inseparably linked to Christ. He does not merely possess the truth the way you and I possess the truth. Uh, we, can, we can know the truth and proclaim the truth, but we aren't the truth ourselves. Uh, see, for us... Uh, truth is external to us. It's outside of us. But for Jesus, truth is internal to him. Uh, he is the truth. Uh, and he is the supreme revelation of the triune God. Truth is his nature. Uh, and what Jesus is, is saying when he emphasizes that he is the truth, he's the one that we have to anchor ourselves to. Right now, each and every day, you and I make decisions about uh, what is true and what is false. Right? Every time we go onto social media, what do we have to begin to discern? Right? Real news from fake news. Uh, what, is, what is true uh, versus what is a, a, a false, fake narrative being proclaimed to us. And, and we have to make sure that we anchor ourselves and our understanding of reality to Christ. Rather than to our own personal experiences, our own personal perceptions, or our own personal feelings. Now, if you anchor yourself to your feelings, uh, your, feelings uh, your anchor is not going to be stable. You're going to be tossed every which way. There's a story of one Wheaton College professor. He shared a conversation that he had with a young woman who told him that she was sure that her Christianity was true. And that Jesus was true because she had experienced him as true in her heart. And I love what the professor did at that point in time. He asked a brilliant question is what is going to happen if those feelings of certainty go away? Saying, I know this is true because I feel it's true. What happens if you don't feel that it's true anymore? 
And her answer, honest but, but sad. She says, I guess I would not be very sure about God if that happened. That's, that's the danger. That's why you cannot use your feelings to validate what is true. Your feelings change constantly. And yet again, that is exactly what the world is telling us to do. Right? The world says that that fleeting feeling that you have about your identity, about what is true about you, what you are to grasp onto that uh, and say, that's now my identity. That fleeting feeling. And you, you can all, often tell biblical truth, uh, just turn it on its, turn what the world is saying on its head, 180 degrees, and you, you'll find biblical truth. The world says your feelings validate and reveal what is true, but that is, that is a lie. Love how Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, you and I can discover truth but we cannot create it. What's true is true, and what's not is not for all of us, all the time. Our culture views truth as something inside us, subject to revision according to our growth and enlightenment. Scripture views truth as something outside us, which we can believe or not, but can never sway. And, and this battle for the truth is not new. Listen to one of the Puritans, John Owen. He says, Without absolutes revealed from without, meaning outside of us, by God himself, we are left rudderless in a sea of conflicting ideas about matters, justice, and right and wrong, issuing from a multitude of self-opinionated thinkers. You would think he's talking about Facebook right there. But, but this issue has always been the issue. There's always been uh, a battle for the truth. There's always been a battle between truth and lies. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, what was the first, first thing that Satan did? His initial question, has God said? And then he began to, to deviate and to contradict what God said, to raise doubts, and then to openly say, no, you won't die. This has always been the battle. And we cling to Jesus because he is the truth. And we cling to him because lies and error and falsehood will ultimately lead to sin, suffering, and spiritual death. We believe the truth. We receive uh, a way to God, relationship with God, and eternal life. If we believe error, leads us away from God to sin and death. Of the way that Pastor Miguel Nunez says the truth matters because every idol of the heart is related to a lie that the mind has embraced. Get that? Every idol of the heart is related to a lie that the mind has embraced. Why do we worship things other than Jesus? Why do we worship things other than God? Because we believed a lie that those things will satisfy us. That those things are a solution to life's problems. Right? What, what, did, what did Satan do with Eve in the garden? Planted this idea. God is holding out on you, Eve. He doesn't want you to eat that fruit. Because when you eat it, you'll be like him. So Eve began to see that that fruit 
was good and able to, to make her wise. And she acted upon it. She wanted what uh, the fruit offered. And God, and God said, if you do that, it's going to lead to spiritual death. But she acted upon it. She believed a lie and then uh, worshipped that fruit, ate the fruit, and received the results. And the more our, our society uh, falls in line with this, the more our society suppresses the truth, the more we are given over to idolatry and immorality. And if we, if we abandon the truth uh, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes, uh, we have an immoral society. Again, uh, to quote uh, Miguel Nunez, man without truth is an immoral creature. Again, this is why we, we cling to Christ as the truth. This is why we proclaim him as the truth as well. Because we need the truth ourselves and the world needs the truth. And truth in John's gospel has been uh, pictured over and over again by light and error uh, and sin as walking in darkness. Again, if you think back to the, to the I am statements, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And whoever believes in him does not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light and life uh, come hand in hand. Truth and life. And that's the connection between what Jesus uh, says in this second assertion and in this third assertion that he gives, where he asserts that he is the source of life. Jesus is the life because life begins with God. Life is not created by man. We only continue what God has begun. Now, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly proclaimed that he is able to give life. And going back to those I am statements, he says he is the bread of life. Back in John 11, he said he is the resurrection and the life. And how did he prove that? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He has demonstrated that over and over again. That he has power over life and death. What's interesting, over the last 75 years, many scientists have attempted to create life. You've probably seen uh, news articles uh, or magazine uh, headlines that... Uh, uh, that claim that scientists have succeeded in creating life. And then you read the article and you're like, oh, wait, no, they actually didn't. Uh, and uh, what, what really takes place in those experiments is that the scientists take apart what God has already created uh, in, in cells with, with uh, different components, RNA, DNA. And then they, they take those components and they put them together in a different way. And they claim that they're drawing closer to cr the creation of life. Uh, and they've synthesized a cell out of parts. But that's not the same thing as creating life. It's kind of like uh, if I were to say, I have created a computer. I have built it. Right? And I can, I can do that. But when I, when I build a computer out of parts, uh, I, I take the, you know, this uh, chip over here and this, this video card and all of, these, all of these components. I put them together. But then you just say, well, but did you create the microchip? Like, see, I'm working with things that have already been created uh, and then I'm putting them together in a different way. I'm not creating anything. I, I'm synthesizing. Uh, if humanity's really going to create life, uh, we have to come up with our own programming language, so to speak. See, all of life has uh, a programming language, DNA, uh, which uh, is, is a code with, with clear logic, with clear rules. And the world around us says, well, that's just by chance. No, it's not. You must have that for life. 
humans cannot create physical life, even more so we cannot create or bestow spiritual life to anyone, including ourselves. And that was the message that, that Jesus uh, spoke to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. You must uh, be born from above. John 3, verses 5 through 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone who has been bo- so it is uh, everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The flesh gives birth to flesh, but only the Spirit gives birth to the spirit we we don't uh create physical life and we don't bestow or create spiritual life jesus is the life and everyone who believes in him receives spiritual life and jesus is able uh, to be the way to god because he is able to bring us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive right only that's the only way that he can be the way if he's able to impart spiritual life, that's the only way he can bring us uh, from the earth to heaven, to be with God eternally. We, we try our best to, to synthesize ourselves, spiritual life, but only the triune God is able to transform the hearts. If you want life, you must look to Jesus. And if you don't look to Jesus, then you don't have life. And that's the fourth assertion that Jesus is going to make here in this, this passage. And that is what's going to be so offensive to our modern culture. That statement is what's going to get you in trouble at work or at the Thanksgiving dinner table. But that is what Jesus makes clear in this final assertion. In verse 6, he says, No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, as I read off all of those I am statements earlier, most of them were followed by something positive, right? Whoever believes, whoever follows, if anyone enters. But this I am statement is worded differently. It's, it's followed by a negative statement. Oftentimes in, in, in theological documents, or, uh, there's what's known as affirmations and denials. Here's what we are affirming. Uh, here's what we are uh, not affirming. Uh, here's what we are against. Here's what we are for. And you do that for clarity. Uh, And Jesus is speaking with clarity. These I am statements, in essence, become uh, a series of affirmations and denials by Jesus. And Jesus is denying the possibility of any person at any time, in any place, getting to God apart from him. There is an exclusivity here. We have to, to see it. We have to acknowledge it. We cannot run from it. We have to embrace it. Earlier I spoke about religious pluralism and and the danger uh, of that, but there's also the danger of uh, inclusivism, which would affirm the truth about Christ and Christianity, uh, and yet also uh, affirm that God has revealed himself in other religions. So the the difference would say that pluralism just says all religions are equal. There's none greater than any other. Inclusivism would say, well, Christianity is a little bit better. Christianity is a little bit higher up, but God has also revealed himself in uh, the other religions. And and so there's an essence, you're you're proclaiming Christ as true, but then, yes, others as well. Uh, If you want to hear what this sounds like, listen to this paragraph. 
from the Second Vatican Council, uh, which was held by the, the Roman Catholic Church back in 1962 to 65. What most people don't realize is that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has made a statement like this. But, but this, is, this is what inclusivism sounds like. They, they said religions, however, that are bound upon are bound up with an advanced culture have struggled to answer the same questions by means of more refined concepts in a more developed language. Thus, in Hinduism, men contemplate the divine mystery and express it through an inexhaustible abundance of myths and through searching philosophical inquiry. They seek freedom from the anguish of, human, of our human condition, either through aesthetic Uh, ascetical practices or profound meditation or a flight to God with love and trust. Again, Buddhism, in its various forms, realizes the radical insufficiency of this changeable world. It teaches a way by which men, in a devout and confident spirit, may be able either to acquire the state of perfect liberation or attain by their own efforts or through uh, higher help, supreme illumination. Likewise, other religions found everywhere try to counter the restlessness of the human heart, each in its own manner, by proposing ways, comprising teachings, rules of life, and sacred rites. The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct and of life, those precepts and teachings which, uh, though differing in many respects, from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Indeed, she proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. So on the one hand, they affirm all of these other religions, and, on the other, and then they, what do they do at the end? They quote this very verse. But what part of the verse did they leave out? Yeah, they, they left out that fourth and final statement that, that no one comes to God except through Christ. Because that statement will nullify everything that they said previously. Right? They don't want to stand on that. They want to affirm Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's good, but others are good as well. And I read this, and again, that's the official statement of the Roman Catholic Church, but I would also say that far too many evangelical Christians are are following in that same vein. Where we want to affirm that Christ is true, but then also we want to give credence and we want to affirm others, other faiths as well. Christ is exclusive. And and to proclaim an inclusive Christ who does not call people to believe in him and him alone, that is to proclaim a a different gospel. What did Jesus say? Can can anyone have two masters? No. Cannot do it. Or remember what I read for communion last Sunday. from 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In equipping hour this morning, we covered through uh, Second Kings. And do you know why the, the nation of uh, Israel and the nation of Judah were ultimately taken away into exile and captivity? Because they didn't worship God alone. They began to syncretize 
Uh, they'd be saying, let's just merge our religion with the religion of the, the Canaanites. Well, let's take our truth and mix it with their truth, and we'll be just fine. Right? The, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, what did he do? Uh, he, he created idols, the, the golden calves from Exodus 32, which Aaron had made. And then he repeats exactly what Aaron had said. And what did, the, what did Aaron say in Exodus 32? Uh, in Jeremiah, or, uh, Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12? They point to the, to the idols and say, Here, Israel, these are the gods who led you up out of Israel. You know, a mixing and a conflation of the truth. And we look at it in, in the history of Scripture, and it leads to judgment. God doesn't look at that and say, Wow, my people really love me. He says, Wow, he, he looks at that and says, My people are following idols. They're wandering away from me. Pluralistic society does not like an exclusive gospel. We know that. We feel that. What we have to be convinced of is that our exclusive Lord does not like a pluralistic society. And we cannot be pleasing to Him while giving in to the world on this matter. You and I cannot shrink back from believing and proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ. Again, we we have to prepare our hearts and our minds now to be attacked. We have to be ready to be called narrow-minded. You have to be ready to be called a bigot. You have to be ready to cling to these truths, these assertions made by Christ here in John 14. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, That's an exact number, right? No one comes to the Father except through Him. May we embrace that. May we wrestle with it. But we have to believe it because it is true. Don't disregard it because of your feelings. And don't let others disregard it because of their feelings. We cling to what is true because what is true is outside of us, not inside of us. We must cling to this.